0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm really excited to have two fantastic people who are doing really interesting work with me to talk about an incredibly important topic, and that is organ donation. This is something that is important in so many ways, but especially for anesthesiologists, since we're involved both in the ICU and in the OR, in organ donation in a lot of different aspects. And so we're going to learn about that today. I've got with me Dr. Emily Vale, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care at University of Pennsylvania, and she's also the co-director of the Penn Center for Perioperative Outcomes Research and Transformation, and also Dr. Varun Goyal, who is an associate professor and the co-medical director at the Center for Life, and that is at the UT Health Center in San Antonio, Texas. Both of you, really excited to have you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So, Emily, let's start with you and just let's talk about some of the background, the very basics of organ donation. What are we talking about? What organs? What's the process? What do you think people need to know as kind of the basics here?
1: Thanks, Jed. So, to start, as anesthesiologist, as you pointed out, we have a lot of contact with transplant patients, both in the ICU and the OR. And important for, to know that we participate in a very large system of both donors and transplant recipients. In the U.S., as of yesterday, January 31st of 2023, there were more than 100,000 patients on waiting lists for solid organs in the U.S. That's everything from kidneys, livers, lungs, heart, pancreas, small bowel, and um, something called vascular composite allograft, which is hand, uterus, and face. Unfortunately, Many patients will lose eligibility for transplant, either because of medical reasons or because they'll pass away before an organ a suitable organ can be available to them. And so the system is set up for us to try to get as many suitable organs for as many potential recipients to really mitigate this national organ shortage, which is something that President Biden has identified as a major initiative of his presidency.
0: That's great. Let me just ask you, because I never knew about this kind of category you mentioned that includes hand, uterus, and face. First, why are those three lumped together? They, they seem very different. Is that just, well, let me ask you, why Why is that in the, why are those three in a category together?
1: I don't know the answer. I think it has more to do with the, the small numbers that we're talking about. Okay. It's kind of um, the, the other. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And then, out of curiosity, a uterus transplant does that allow someone to carry a a baby that would not otherwise be able to? I mean, is that a, a, it's a functional uterus transplant?
1: Yes, correct. So, uh, to date, the majority have been living donors. So, women who have successfully carried pregnancies to term can be a donor for a for an infertile a person with uterine infertility who takes then immunosuppression for the duration of the pregnancy and then. Subsequently, usually has an explant after. There are there are is a trial ongoing looking at use of deceased donor uteruses. So some of our recent donors in the Penn Center have been uterus donors for for that process.
0: Okay, really interesting. All right, so obviously, like you said, major major issues with such a long wait list and people who need the transplants and never get them. So that's something to be addressed. What makes someone eligible for donation?
1: In general, living don. The criteria are slightly different for living donors. In general, those are volunteers who either want to make a gift without knowing a recipient or specifically for a recipient. Um, They tend to be young with almost no medical problems who go through an intensive medical and psychological screening process. The people that we see in the intensive care unit are critically ill and not expected to survive hospitalization. Those criteria change all the time. There are some administrative criteria for donation, things like age less than 75, without with who are mechanically ventilated without disseminated cancer or infection. But I want to encourage your listeners to really rely on the organ procurement organization staff in the ICU and people available by phone to make those determinations because the criteria change all the time. For example, with hepatitis C, now we patients who have hepatitis C are able to donate organs to hepatitis C negative recipients because of their ability to get antiviral treatment after transplant.
0: Yeah, that's really important. And, you know, I'm sure, I shouldn't say I'm sure, I think this is probably true everywhere. I know it's true here for us at Hopkins that we don't have to know all of this uh, as ICU doctors. We have a a um, program or a, an organization that's called Living Legacy here, but they... Handle that. So all we have to do is let them know, you know, we've got someone who we think is not going to survive. And the kind of they take it from there, which really takes the burden off of us in terms of having to know all the nuances. And also, I think importantly, removes us from that process of, you know, I'm caring for this patient, I'm not going to then also go and try to, you know, Ask the, be seen as as trying to convince the family, maybe even if that wasn't my intention, to donate or to agree to donation. That's going to be handled by a separate organization, and they're not taking care of the patient in the ICU. Is that similar everywhere? Or yeah,
1: yeah, you're absolutely right. So the the organization that you mentioned is considered an organ procurement organization. So those are regional federal contractors that carry they cover specific regions of the United States, and they are. Contractors for Medicare and Medicaid specifically to do that work. It's important, as you point out, for that potential or apparent conflict of interest with families. And there's also some research that when the first people that talk about donation with a family isn't, is a trained professional from those organizations, the likelihood that a family is willing to donate is higher. So two reasons for them to be present.
0: Great. Yeah. I think it's, it's incredibly useful. And if, if listeners want to check it out, I actually did an interview years ago with um, a really wonderful a person who's a nurse by training is now back as a nurse, but for a period of many years, he w- ran the living legacy office at, um, at Hopkins. And we talked about donation and he's actually a, a liver donor recipient himself. Um, and so had his own story to tell as well as just the um, ins and outs of kind of that organization. Um, all right. So let's talk about, uh, living donation. What's the, what's involved in, in that? You mentioned a little bit, but what different types of living donation are there and how does that work?
1: So the most common is kidney. It's also possible to give a partial liver generally to a smaller adult recipient or child recipient. Um, We mentioned uterus and then there are programs for single lung donation, but that's pretty uncommon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. I actually didn't realize that. So Those are living uh, donors. And then do you always have to say, "Okay, I'm donating to this person or I think you mentioned earlier, you can kind of just say, I want to make this gift uh, and not, you know, without knowing who it's going to go to.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. So there's a a small but uh, real proportion of people who want to make this gift who maybe don't. Don't know someone who needs who is actively listed, or maybe they had a, po- a past positive experience and want to do this. And so they can approach a local transplant program to volunteer. More commonly, a person knows of a sick family member or friend that they would like to donate to. And then they can either directly donate if all of the medical screening is complete and they are immunologically similar to that person, or in a growing number of cases, if there isn't a perfect match, they can still donate to someone else, uh, a a different recipient who is a match uh, in exchange for an expected transplant for their loved one. Yeah.
0: And this has really been, I I think there was an article about this years ago, and we certainly are involved in these. I'm sure you are too, but sometimes it's extensive, right? It might be a 15, 16 kind of person chain um, where everyone is, getting an organ and donating. Right. It's like goes around. To, and then that is also that you can match up. You know, everyone gets the the organ that matches them, even if it's not if you don't know someone who's going to give you their own.
1: Yes, that's true. And and sometimes that can cross the country. Right. It, uh, kidney from Pennsylvania can go to California. The recipient in California has a loved one in Washington state who, who's been giving one to someone in Montana. So there are huge networks facilitated by um, some fancy algorithms to make that happen. But but a really a special process.
0: Yeah, very cool. Now, the outcomes for donors, I imagine, must be very good, uh, right? Or otherwise, this probably wouldn't be happening. So, it, do do we know any details on that? I mean, is it? Um, I imagine the mortality is vanishingly small for uh, kidney and liver donors. Maybe a little different for lung donors. I'm not sure. But how? What do we know about that?
1: I don't know much.
0: Okay, yeah, it's got to be small, right? I mean, it wouldn't be—you'd never get it approved if it was a a serious um, mortality risk. And I think places, you know, I'm sure I know it's true of us. I'm sure it's true everywhere. You know, the care that donors get is really something. And we even do, um, you know, if we have a donor who is in our ICU, uh, usually that would be a liver donor. We, you know, they get a um, an honor guard, so everybody kind of lines the hall and applauds them, and you know, it's really. And then of course, everyone is very dedicated to make sure their outcomes are good. Um, and I, I imagine that's probably true everywhere.
1: You know, I would say in rare circumstances, at least for kidney allocation, a person who has previously donated a kidney who then may unexpectedly go on to need a kidney transplant is very high is prioritized very quickly. So it's recognized that this is a lifelong gift and something that's really of um, value to the whole system.
0: That's great. All right. So that's living donation. And then how about there's different types of Deceased donor donation, right? So there's donation after brain death and there's donation after circulatory death. Um, Want to talk a little bit about those, the difference, and and what do you think people need to know?
1: I think most of what Dr. Oyle is going to talk about is donation after brain death. That's the process that anesthesiologists are most directly involved with in the operating room. Donation after brain death is legally and ethically acceptable because of an understanding that death is a legal and medical, or brain death is a legal and medical form of death. And so the procedures and processes for those donors are pretty straightforward. The, there are not enough donors after brain death to meet all the, the national requirements for organs. And so a growing proportion of deceased donors donate after circulatory death. Circulatory death is a special category that requires some extra care and a, an even more integrated system of care because it really relies on the ICU teams to help with the with the donation process.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's go through those. And I just want to make sure everyone understands, and and you you both, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the donation after brain death means that the heart is still pumping, meaning the organs are still perfused. And so in a way, those I, I would I think of those organs as you know, in a way better preserved, right? Whereas donation after circulatory death, obviously, by definition, there's no circulation. And so you are going to have some longer time where that organ is not being at least perfused in the way it normally is. So, you know, you if you if you had to choose, you'd probably pick an organ coming after a donation after brain death, right? That's going to be a more likely to um, function well organ if you had to compare. Is that accurate?
1: I think, in general, yeah, the the benchmarks are changing, but in general, the, the donation from circulatory death; those outcomes are compared to brain death. Um, it's also over time. We're the transplant teams are better understanding which patients. Can successfully be transplanted from a donor, a donor after circulatory death, maybe that's an older donor or someone who is more able to tolerate a period of graft dysfunction if that happens. so they do pretty they have some pretty careful care considerations. There's also um, predictive models to help us understand which critically ill and injured people not expected to serve a high survive hospitalization. Are likely to pass after withdrawal of, of um, life support in a time ta- in a short enough time frame that those organs can be um, acceptably recovered after death without long periods of hypotension or hypoxemia. Okay,
0: great. Burun, At- go ahead.
2: Um, At the same time, um, with the shortage of organs, there's really a push in the OPO world to really expand DCD donation. Um, So in the future, those are going to take up a greater proportion of the organ donor pool.
0: Great. And just let's uh, define some of the OPO. What is that?
2: That's the uh, organ procurement organizations.
0: Okay. And DCD is donation after cardiac death?
2: Uh, Yes. It's now known as circulatory death.
0: Donation after circulatory death. Okay, great. Um, All right. So uh, Emily or Broome, do one of you want to kind of take us through donation after circulatory death and the different steps and how anesthesiologists are involved in that?
1: Sure. Sure. So the process starts in the ICU with a critically ill or injured patient not expected to survive hospitalization or for whom the type of support that they need to survive is incompatible with their with their goals of care. In those situations, when the ICU team talks to the organ procurement organization, they can approach the patient sometimes directly or the family and have a conversation about the potential for donation after circulatory death. So there's no diagnosis of brain death, no expected diagnosis of brain death, but generally someone who, uh, who's mechanically ventilated, very ill, maybe on a lot of pressure, sometimes on ECMO. The, those potential donors then go through the same process of consent and uh, medical testing for eligibility for donation, and then the, the transplant coordinators look for transplant programs willing to accept those organs. When all of that administrative work is done, the ICU team, the potential donor, and often their family members will go to the operating room for the process of withdrawal of life-supporting therapies. That can be in general as terminal extubation and discontinuation of pressors or other therapies. The reason that the ICU team is involved is it really is an extension of the ICU. So the same way that we have critically ill patients in our ICUs for whom goals change and we change our our therapies that we offer, that same process should happen in the operating room with family present in the same exact way. The difference here is after therapies are withdrawn. If the patient passes away, the ICU doctor or one of their delegates and nurse practitioner or someone else on that team declares death, there's a fi- two to five minute waiting period where to ensure that there isn't any auto resuscitation. And after that waiting period or observation period, the ICU team and the family leave and only then can the transplant team come into the room to begin the recovery procedure. And at that point, is
0: there any, I mean, the patient is dead and the body is not, there's no, there's no um, cardiac activity. So there, I imagine you don't need an anesthesiologist at that point, or is there an anesthesiologist there?
1: That's a great question. So there isn't a need for, in most cases, ongoing organ support. There's no circulation to for medications or any really need. In some rare instances when, instances, when the lungs are going to be recovered for transplant or for research, the, the deceased donor will need to be reintubated for lung recruitment, and that can be sometimes done by an anesthesiologist. There's ASA recently updated their guidelines, and they're available on their website. They walk through this process pretty carefully, but and really identify that the role of the anesthesia team should be in helping to facilitate this as leaders in the OR space. They do try to draw the line, though, between an anesthesia team who maybe doesn't know the patient being asked to withdraw life sustaining therapies um, to facilitate this process. And again, like you mentioned earlier, really trying to separate the transplant team from the care team. Yeah,
0: and that why it makes a lot of sense that you said the ICU team—it's the natural team to take the patient down, withdraw support, just like you would do in the ICU if you were not doing a donation. I mean, that's just changing the location, but doing the same thing you would do in here. Exactly. Let me ask you about, you mentioned consent, obviously important part here. So obviously there are some people who, you know, they get the driver's license, they they check the box that says, yes, I want to be an organ donor. Is that, you know, I think this probably gets into some complicated areas and feel free to say maybe we need a whole other episode on this. But, you know, do, let's say someone's driver's license says they're a donor and they're unconscious so they, they can't comment um, and their family says we don't want to, we don't want them to be a donor. You know, does that override the person's own wishes as, as indicated on their driver's license form? And if, and then if we go beyond the driver's license form, what about a living will that says, I want to be a donor? You know, what, what happens when the family may be saying something different than what our understanding of what the patient wanted?
1: Do you want to talk, do you want to go through this?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely a complicated topic. Um, and the part of the, um, we try to separate ourselves from the donation process to some degree for this reason Um, The OPO would generally manage these kind of issues. Um, But generally, the thought is to not to override the family's wishes, come to some sort of agreement. Um, I think there have been instances where the OPO said, hey, this patient's uh, wanted to be an organ donor, these are their wishes, and really pushed for it against the family's wishes. Um, But we try to separate ourselves from that.
0: Okay. So in general, when we're getting consent, we're talking to the family and getting their consent. Okay.
2: Now, Um, but I think usually families are very happy to support their loved one's uh, wishes to be a donor. Yes. Uh, and that's my,
0: that's absolutely been my experience as well. Um, okay. So um, Emily, what organs uh, can be procured uh, and what are the outcomes we know for for those specific organs? Um, what do you think is important for people to know?
1: In terms of the DCD process? Yeah. Yeah. So all organs can be procured. The kidneys and livers are the most resilient to these periods of hypotension and hypoxemia. And so those are probably most commonly used. Um, lungs and hearts have been recovered, and successfully transplanted, in general, those organs are supported for some period with, through a process called normothermic regional perfusion that I, um, that I think uh, Dr. Goyle was able to, to tell us a little bit about.
0: Great. Do you want to comment on that, everyone?
2: Yeah. So, Jed, as you alluded to earlier, um, patients that are going to uh, be uh, DCD donors, uh, they undergo this warm ischemic time where the organs are still warm, yet there is no circulation supporting them. Um, so that worsens their outcomes. Um, so especially with livers, we can see there's more ischemic coagulopathy, even though some, uh, there's pretty good outcomes for the most part. So that makes transplant centers reluctant to take those organs and decreases the opportunity for those patients to donate organs, um, because if we know there's going to be more delayed graft function, the out- outcomes aren't going to be as good, people are less likely to pursue them. Um, so normothermic regional perfusion is a technique that basically allows you to reperfuse the organs quickly inside the patient's body immediately after the declaration of death, after that five minute waiting period. This is a technique that's commonly used in Europe and is slowly gaining some favor in the US because we can see that the outcomes are remarkably better with this technique. Um, So the way this works, just to kind of give you an idea, there's multiple ways of doing this. But so say you do the DCD process, you withdraw care, you wait for five minutes, the surgeons immediately open up the sternum and they'll um, cannulate the um, arterial and the venous side, so the right atrium as well as the aorta. Um, this is going to sound very similar to ECMO, but it's really important to make a distinction between normothermic regional perfusion and ECMO, because we think of ECMO as sustaining life um, and being there to help patients keep living. Um, but the difference here is that the surgeons will deliberately exclude circulation to the brain, so a clamp will be applied to the innominate as well as the cerebral uh, vessels to ensure that as you recirculate blood, it doesn't inadvertently go to the brain. And then basically, there now there's a question as to whether this patient's actually living or deceased. Um, At that point, um, the circuit can be run. It's just like a modified ECMO circuit, um, and you can reperfuse the organs. You can warm them. The process will be run for about one to four hours. And during this time, the transplant teams can be assessing the organs. They can be checking labs. For example, they can send transaminase levels. Um, They can evaluate for bile production from the liver. Um, And then it can also wean from this uh, mechanical support and allow the heart to reanimate on its own and then assess cardiac function. So during this process, as they're winning support, they can assess the heart with a PA catheter or transesophageal echocardiogram, and then make sure that all the organs are functional. And then eventually they will proceed as they would with um, an organ procurement as you normally would for a brain dead donor.
0: Very interesting. Uh, Okay. And so the... The point here is you almost can well, – I mean, I imagine it's much faster, right, because you're getting – as soon as that waiting period is over, you're starting this reperfusion or as soon as the surgeons can cannulate. And mm-hmm. then you are even getting to a point, like you said, where sometimes you can actually get the natural circulation back. In other words, the heart will start and, and be able to perfuse. Um, and then you are – like you said, you're you're back, basically now simulating a, a a donation after a brain death scenario. Um Exactly. It's interesting to hear, why do you think there was this, uh, you know, it's been used in Europe and there's been this delay in in use here?
2: So there's definitely some ethical implications to this, as you can imagine, restarting the circulation in a patient for the purposes of organ donation um, and actively excluding the cerebral circulation as well. Um, So some people, I mean, for good reason, take issue with that. People are wondering, does this violate the dead donor rule, which states that um, organs can only be retrieved after the patient is dead and procurement cannot proceed uh, or sorry, cause the donor's death, uh, as well. Um, and then there's you're also resuming cardiac activity, which, um, I think creates some concerns. So I think until we have some national guidelines, um, in the United States, it makes it a little bit harder, but there's definitely certain groups at, um, major institutions that are utilizing this to procure DCD hearts, um, and just overall expand the donor pool.
0: Okay. Very interesting. So let's turn to donation after brain death for, do you want to kind of take us through the differences there?
2: Yeah. So donation after brain death. Um, so brain death is a condition in which the um, the brain, including the brainstem, is no longer functioning. Um, and this is irreversible. So it's typically caused by major neurologic injury uh, conditions such as traumatic brain injury, intracranial hemorrhage, stroke, ischemic injury. Um, and then these patients um, for are legally not alive. And if they or their family wish to be an organ donor, they could proceed with organ donation. So uh, when you're routing in the ICU on these critically ill patients, especially in the neurocritical care unit, you have to um, you'll come across these patients that may exhibit signs of progression towards brain death. Um, and eventually, once they start to lose some of their brainstem functions, you can consider them for brain death testing. At the same time, it's really important to notify the organ procurement organization in a timely fashion so they can start talking to the family and say, hey, you know, if, this, if your loved one progresses to brain death, this is the process for organ donation. Is that something that you guys would be okay with? Um, And as Emily mentioned earlier, there's triggers um, that would allow you to notify the OPO early. And there's also automated triggers, um, which capture data from the electronic medical record to identify these really critically ill patients so the OPOs can get more consistent information and in a more timely fashion.
0: Yeah. You know, I know one of the real frustrations of people who work for the OPOs is that we often don't contact them in time. And I think a lot of that is just a lack of awareness. So hopefully part of what we're doing here today is spreading that awareness. Um, yeah. And part of it, I think, is a misunderstanding of what it would mean to contact them. And, I, you know, my understanding is the first thing they do when you contact them is not run and go talk to the family. They evaluate the chart. They figure out what's going on with the patient and whether the patient is even an, a can, would be a candidate. You know, like Emily said, if they have disseminated cancer, they may not be. Um and then if they decide they're, they are a candidate, then they, you know, this, their whole job is to be able to approach these families in a supportive and compassionate way. So, you know, I think that's really key. And we don't want to wait until until we are literally withdrawing, you know, support and then say, oh, we should call them, right? Emily, what do you think?
1: No, that's that's absolutely true. It, it may not be so clear to the, the clinicians taking care of the patients, but the organ procurement organizations have a process of following by phone. So... If they've been notified, they are waiting on some testing or waiting for clinical progression, they may call the bedside nurse a few times a day to see if there's been any updates. Maybe family's been identified or there have been some early conversations or things like a brain death exam are anticipated. So they can do a lot of their work once, the, once they're aware that this, this person exists and, and may be heading down, down this path.
0: Yeah, great. So, Bruin, let's talk about the brain death exam. And I don't know that we need to go over all the details of how to do it. But, you know, are there national rules? Is this a state by state? You know, who decides what what a brain death exam consists of? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those, too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it. But trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause or reschedule. Head to Factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at Factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All
2: right. And we're back. Um, There's national level guidelines for brain death testing, um, although there may be some variations at the state level or even the hospital level as to who's responsible for doing the brain death exam, how many exams need to be done um, and minor variations like that. But in general, it's uh, irreversible cessation of the brain, including the brainstem. So. It's a series of uh, examinations that evaluate the function of the brain as well as the brainstem. So in general, you'll evaluate for the patient having an irreversible state. There's some uh, uh, irreversible neurological condition. There's also some other prerequisites. Um, They have to have a normal metabolic level, be hemodynamically stable. One that's a little bit tricky and requires some judgment is that the patient cannot have any drugs, sedatives, or paralytics on board. Um, and some of these patients, for example, may have been cooled for in the setting of cardiac arrest for hypo, uh, therapeutic hypothermia, and it's really unclear how long it takes those medicines to wash out in someone that's hypothermic. So that definitely requires a little bit of judgment. Um, but once they meet these prerequisites, um, brain death testing involves clinical testing, um, which means that they, they're they in a, a coma, they're not responsive to any stimulation, and then brain stem testing, which is a series of reflexes such as the pupillary reflex, corneal reflex, Um, oculovestibular, cough, and gag. And that's a a whole lecture in in, in and of itself. Um, In addition to the clinical testing, you also have to do further testing, which can include an apnea test. Um, And the apnea test basically demonstrates that the brainstem um, does not respond to a high level of CO2 and initiate respirations. Um, So it's very similar to what we do under anesthesia at the end of surgery when we're trying to wake a patient up, allow their CO2 levels to rise, and see if they breathe. Um, so that's a kind of a good analogy that I think of and explain to people. Um, but you'll essentially pre-oxygenate the patient for a period of time, um, give them blow by oxygen via CPAP or T-piece, um, make them apneic for about 10 periods, shut off the ventilator, and observe from respirations. That's the part that's really critical is to really watch this patient and make sure that they're not initiating breathing. Then at the end of the 10 minutes, you can check in arterial blood gas and show that their PaCO2 is over approximately 60 millimeters mercury. Great. Um, Some patients are too unstable to undergo apnea testing, in which case ancillary testing, such as a cerebral angiogram, would be required.
0: Great. All right. Thanks for taking us through that. Now,
2: you know, we talk a lot these days
0: about kind of centers for things, stroke center, you know, uh, ECMO center. Are there... um donor, you know, um, kind of units that are better trained in this whole process of donation, uh, of organ donation. And if so, is that the goal to get people to that? Or are these also can be managed in, in a community hospital setting?
1: That's a good question. You're right. There's a, there's a lot of different surgical and medical conditions where centralization has demonstrated to be beneficial. And that process has, is happening in organ donation for these large regions of the country that an individual uh, OPO covers, they may have to have coordinators drive four or five hours to assess a donor in a hospital. And depending on the size of the hospital and the number of patients they're taking care of, they may not be able to do some of the required testing or they may have challenges, for example, getting a, a consented authorized donor to the operating room in a timely fashion. So since the early 2000s, some centers have started to move deceased donors after brain death either to hospitals, like almost like a center of excellence type model, or to a facility outside of a hospital with spaces that look like an ICU, look like an OR, where they can do all of the donor management and testing um, that would be done in a hospital.
0: Okay, and do we, you know, do we know anything about outcomes in that scenario, or yeah?
1: the the earliest outcomes come from from the St. Louis center which has been the longest operating and they were able to demonstrate things like slightly more organs transplanted from donors especially specific types of donors and some important things like shorter uh, time from declaration of brain death to organ recovery they also talk about better adherence to, to clinical protocols um, what we're as these centers expand we're doing some research to better understand both what processes work better in these centers, if outcomes are universally better, and then also to understand whether the types of centers that Goyle um, that and I work in, which are specific units within hospitals, what are the relative advantages and dif- disadvantages of that model.
0: Okay. So we'll have more data coming out as these get studied more.
1: Varun, do you want to talk to us a little bit about
0: the, when you have a brain dead donor, you obviously have some time because the organs are still being perfused. There's not a rush. So what kind of um, care is provided to preserve those organs? What kind of testing is done? Um, And does it vary by organ?
2: Yeah. So I'll I'll take you through a little bit organ by by organ. Um, So in general, these patients are really critically ill. They may have been in the ICU for an extended period of time. Um, Sometimes towards the end of their ICU stay, to some degree, there may be some um, neglect in their care um, because, you know, these patients, are, you're expecting to progress towards death. You may not be as careful about managing their electrolytes, their volume status, and that may really impact the quality of your organs further down the line. Um, they also may have significant traumatic injuries. They may be volume overloaded. Uh, they may be hypovolemic also if they've dev- gone into diabetes insipidus. So you're really um, dealing with a lot of uh, medical issues a- a- upon the time of brain death declaration. So we really have to kind of uh, stabilize these patients first while we're working them up. It takes about one to two days for the transplantation process in terms of determining suitability for transplantation, um, for the organ procurement organization to coordinate with transplant centers locally and nationally to allocate these organs. And you really want these organs to get the best chance for transplantation, so you really want to optimize them before you start sending out these offers so they get to have the best chance of being accepted. So the overall process takes a couple days, in which case, um, in which time they're they're being managed. Um, so for the in terms of hemodynamics, um, you're really trying to keep them uvolemic, make sure they don't get significant pulmonary edema. Um, I think uh, monitoring can, is really important in this case. Um, there's no really best monitor in the old days. Uh, PA catheters were very commonly used, especially to assess the heart and cardiac function. Um, but nowadays, most places are using either pulse contour analysis or bioreactance monitors. As long as you have something that can help you assess the systemic vascular resistance, fluid responsiveness and really guide your hemodynamic management, it's probably less important what you actually use. Um, It's really important to try to get them off vasoactive medications relatively quickly and make sure they're euvolemic um, because you want to be able to get an echocardiogram and demonstrate that the heart is functioning um, appropriately. Because if you're on a a significant amount of pressors or inotropes and all that, it's really hard to evaluate the heart and determine its ejection fraction appropriately. Um, In terms of evaluating the heart, the ejection fraction is going to be the most important indicator as to cardiac function. But sometimes you find that a lot of these patients have developed a significant stress cardiomyopathy during in the progression of brain death, very similar to Takatsubo's, where there may be some degree of reversibility to the cardiac dysfunction. So sometimes even if the heart doesn't look that great initially, if you give it some time and some tender loving care, then over 24 to 48 hours, some of that cardiac function may actually recover. And what some places are doing is actually using stress cardi- uh, stress echocardiography with either dobutamine or starting a milrinone challenge to see if there's reversibility in the cardiac uh, dysfunction.
0: Okay. So important to look at heart function to think about the fact that you may need to give it some time, especially if there's been some degree of stress cardiomyopathy. How about lungs?
2: Lungs are definitely the most challenging organs to place. Um, and there's a huge shortage of lungs in general. Um, the reasons for that, um, they can undergo several hits during the course of their ICU stay. Um, there may be aspiration. There may be uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, traumatic injuries, pneumothoraces, atelectasis. Um, so they can really take a fair amount of work to really optimize. Uh, the transplant teams are primarily going to be looking at things like the PDF ratio, PAO2 to FIO2, uh, to, for it to be over 300, which is much higher than we're used to, so um, Lack of smoking history, clear bronchoscopy, treating pneumonia. Um, so one of the most important things uh, early in the course of managing these lungs is to do a therapeutic bronchoscopy, um, both for diagnosis as well as to improve the function of the lungs. So what we'll do is we'll go in there, we'll clean out the lungs, we'll send some samples for testing, um, because it may impact what kind of antibiotics are most appropriate for that patient. Um, you can see if there's ammonia Improve atelectasis and really clean the lungs out really nicely. If there's any foreign bodies, they can be removed at that time as well. Um, and then it just requires a great deal of attention um, and aggressive management to recruit those lungs. So what a couple of things that we'll do that are a little bit different from what we'll do in our critically ill patients, we'll really inflate that the endotracheal tube cuff aggressively um, to make sure that there's no secretions that go around the endotracheal tube. We'll do lung protective ventilation as we do for all of our patients as well. Um, we'll try to minimize ventilator disconnections to decrease the amount of atelectasis that develops. Um, and then aggressive recruitment protocols have been developed. So this it was actually one one is actually called the San Antonio lung transplant protocol. Unfortunately, I can't take any credit for that. It was before my time. Um, but you basically apply about 25 uh, centimeters of water of pressure control with a high degree of peat for about two hours and prolong the inspiratory time. Uh, to about one-to-one, one, as opposed to what we usually do, which is one-to-two or one-to-three. You do that for about two hours and really recruit those lungs and then see what, if, what your P-to-F ratio is. Um, another thing that was um, tried a few years ago and has demonstrated some success is proning patients, um, because that improves VQ mismatch, improves the degree of atelectasis, um, and may also help clear some of the secretions that are coming out of those lungs as well.
0: Great. Okay. lungs the most challenging. How about kidney and liver?
2: Kidney and liver are a little bit more straightforward. Uh, A lot of times you're just dealing with what you've already been given. Um, But something that we're starting to do more and more of uh, for kidneys, and this actually helps all of the other organs as well, is just early initiation of dialysis. In the intensive care unit, typically we wait until the patient demonstrates some signs that they really need dialysis, like volume overload, hyperkalemia. Um, But in organ donors, our goals are a little bit different in terms of organ preservation. And a lot of our patients have electrolyte abnormalities, volume overload, hypernatremia from diabetes insipidus. So what we've started doing is uh, initiating dialysis a little bit more early in their course, and this can help uh, mitigate some of those issues, allow you to remove some volume and overall improve the function of those organs. And we're actually finding a lot of these kidneys are transplantable um, after the organ procurement. Um, So despite them having gone on dialysis and having acute kidney injury, you can biopsy them, run them on a pump, and they will ultimately be transplantable Um, for the liver. um, Sometimes we'll get biopsies just to make sure the liver is looking okay. And one really important thing to avoid um, that can impact post-transplant outcomes is hypernatremia, um, because hypernatremia makes uh, a re- uh, hepatic outcomes worse.
0: Okay, good to know. Other organs, we do pancreas transplants sometimes. Um, is there anything unique for kind of endocrine organs?
2: Uh, for the pancreas, not really. Um, the really important, one important Uh, thing to note is to make sure their hyperglycemia is controlled and that the patient doesn't get too edematous or volume overloaded because that can impact the quality of that organ.
0: Okay, great. So um, you have this time period, you can kind of do all the various um, testing and and procedures that you mentioned, echo or whatever it is that you need. Um, And then you're going to do, how does it work? Does the information get sent out to the kind of national organ network and um, you know, how do they decide where they go and who's going to accept them? What what happens in that black box?
2: Um, so I think it's a little bit complex in terms of organ allocation. And I think these rules are constantly changing. So the organ procurement organization actually has a special person dedicated to running the transplant list. So once they determine that this organ is looking OK and may be suitable for transplantation, they'll start running their list and they'll start locally and then if the local centers decline, to look a little bit more regionally and then eventually to national centers. Um, and all of the organ allocation rules differ by the organ. And because what we found is that the equity of organ allocation is not quite there, um, because depending on where you're living, if you're close to several transplant centers, you may have more opportunity to get an organ than if you're, say, in Alaska. So in an effort to mitigate that, um, the allocation rules are constantly changing to improve equity.
0: Okay. So... Now, we talked about how with donation after cardiac death, it's really the ICU team that's going to go to the OR. That's very different with donation after brain death. Now you you need an anesthesia team. So Emily, do you want to give us kind of the background on anesthesia for organ procurement in the setting of donation after brain death?
1: Sure. So I'll start by saying that we don't know very much. The overarching principle and the thing that makes sense to us as clinicians doing a lot of these cases is that you want to maintain homeostasis, right? So whatever blood pressure, whatever oxygenation to maintain perfusion and uh, to the organs that are being recovered for as long as possible. There are some guidelines. They're mostly um, informed by expert, expert consensus, but those guidelines walk an anesthesiologist through the procedure, the steps of the procedure, some of the things they may be asked to do. Including um, offering some some advice for hemodynamic goals, for example, a mean arterial pressure of more than sixty, um, a central venous pressure between six and ten, just to try to over to try to overall um, set some standards for for how this care should be delivered. The key differences, you know, we're, we in the OR are comfortable managing blood pressure, managing hemodynamics, managing ventilation, is Unlike living patients, administration of volatile anesthetics will lead to vasodilation, and there is no cerebral blood flow. So any vaso, any volatile that's delivered is not going to go is not going to be of any value and is not needed. the The other important component is spinal reflexes. So as, even with brain death and an absence of cerebral function and brainstem function spinal reflexes may be preserved. So it's important to give muscle relaxant to prevent those spinal reflexes that can lead to unexpected unexpe- movement and damage to organs and tissues or, or, or injury to the team. The reason that we have guidelines that are mostly expert consensus isn't because we can't do research in organ donors. It's just that we don't have enough evidence to really pra- to really use that in practice, um, It's especially challenging because they're rare cases. So in a very busy hospital with a transplant center, a stroke center, lots of cases of brain death, they may still only have 20 or 30 brain dead donors an entire year in a big anesthetic practice that may end up being just a few cases per person or even fewer. One of our colleagues, Abjit Laley, who works in the Harborview system of University of Washington, put a paper out a couple years ago where they just looked at, at anesthetic records from these donors over I think a 10 or 15 year period. And they found that on average, an anesthesiologist did between zero and seven cases a year.
0: Yeah. So definitely not something most people have a lot of experience with, Um, but really interesting, as you say, so, you know, you really don't need to use any, uh, anesthetic gas or propofol because there's not a living brain. And then you do want to use muscle relaxant so that you don't get the spinal reflexes. Um, okay, great. Um, Barun, anything to add there about the kind of actual case conduct when you take one of these patients to the OR?
2: I think there's really some unique aspects to taking care of a brain dead organ donor. For one, as Emily mentioned, your goals are really uh, physiologic homeostasis as opposed to managing pain, discomfort, and sedation. Um, so it really alters what you're doing to some degree in the fact that you're not really using anesthetic agents. Um, some places actually will not even have a vaporizer on their anesthetic machine. Um, Some institutions or uh, organ procurement organizations don't even use anesthesia support. They'll have specially trained people because um, the rules and guidelines for taking care of dead people are a little bit different from those of living people. Um, So there's definitely a lot of variation in how these patients are managed. Um, In general, um, invasive hemodynamic monitoring can be really helpful, especially an arterial line, um, preferably with some sort of uh, flow track device or something similar Um, Sometimes the central venous pressure can be helpful as well, especially for the surgical teams. Um, Some other unique aspects is that you may have multiple operating room teams coming flying in from all over the country. So really timing of these operations can be really difficult, um, and where there may be some back and forth, and you may have to change the time depending on various factors. Um, And sometimes those surgical teams may have conflicting goals to some degree as well, because the lung team may be concerned about volume overload and pulmonary edema, whereas the abdominal team wants to give some fluid. So there's a little bit of interplay and back and forth on that. Um, And then I think the most unique thing is that at the end of the surgery, when your services are no longer required, you leave the operating room without the patient. And I think that's really uh, where people feel that it's different.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely different. And so, you know, I wonder if, um, and, and let me ask you guys, are there people who, You know, so on average, right, like you said, Emily, on average, maybe, you know, zero to seven to one to seven. Are there people, though, who really in a given group in a given uh, practice who specialize in this and say, okay, I'm going to do all of them or most of them and then really develop expertise at this?
1: I think a growing number, um, Dr. Michael Sauter at University of Washington has been doing this work for a long time. There are some anesthesiologists who are employed by or have a specific consulting relationship with an with an OPO. But I think that the donor center model has helped us as anesthesiologists and intensivists find other people interested in this work and to use the the centers as platforms for education, for research, for collaboration.
0: Great. And so, what do you think of as, so obviously the anesthesiologist has a role, like we just talked about in the OR with a, a donor who's donating after brain death. What about in general? You had mentioned before, Emily, that the ASA kind of, you know, put out some guidelines suggesting that there are roles for anesthesiologists in terms of leadership roles in this. What, what do you think of as additional roles for anesthesiologists here?
1: I think the first thing for everyone to do is to look at the protocol for donor anesthetic management at their hospital, see what the the OPO teams have come up with, see when that's been updated, um, see if it makes sense to you or see if there's opportunities to improve. Um, Very few OPOs have anesthesiologists as consultants or employees. And uh, in a recent survey that we did, we found that uh, a majority of those um, OPOs are not using anesthesiologists regularly to help inform their clinical care. So there's a, there's a knowledge gap that we can help fill by, by, moving those protocols closer to guidelines or identifying specific processes in your hospital to make the care more streamlined. We did talk about brain death. There's a period after brain death of relative stability or they need critical care, but that is time limited. And a a significant proportion of donors after brain death will progress to cardiac death. So if you're the person running the board, allocating your anesthesia teams, important that you prioritize those cases.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, Anything to add there, Varun?
2: No, I think it's really important for anesthesiologists to be involved um, because if we're not at the table, then, you know, we're we're the food. Yeah. So let me ask,
0: what are the hope? What is the hope for the future? I mean, we started, Emily, by you saying there's a hundred thousand long wait list here. You know, we we've seen recently um, at the University of Maryland some interesting work with xenotransplantation. Um, you know, is there hope on the horizon here for either increased donation by by human beings or by increased kind of progression with xenotransplantation? You know, are we going to cut into this wait list, or uh, what, what's the hope?
1: I, I think both of those those um, are true. Both increasing the number of people who are willing to be donors, and then even before xenotransplantation, thinking about ways to rehabilitate organs that are maybe injured and not initially considered for transplantation. So in addition to the normal thermic reperfusion modalities used for some donors after circulatory death, there are similar organ-specific models um, that fall under the umbrella of ex vivo perfusion, which allow a recovered organ to be perfused um, and given nutrients for some period of time for additional testing. So kidneys can be on these systems for hours to assess whether um, function returns. And there's a gro- there's more and more technology for different organ systems to be able to better rehabilitate organs um, in that during the process.
0: Great. All right. This has been great. I think we've covered a lot of really, really important material. Anything that either of you wants to add before we move on? Anything that we missed? Not for me. Okay, great. Well, let's turn then to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. I'll ask each of you to recommend to the audience something that you think they should check out. Um, Emily, do you want to start?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I'd like to recommend a book I have not read, but I'm looking forward to reading. Um, one of my friends and mentors, Dr. Hannah Wan, she's an anesthesiologist and intensivist now at University of Toronto, has written a book called The Autumn Ghost about uh, Copenhagen during the polio epidemic, really covering the history and development of critical care in that space. That's coming out in May. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading it because she's a lovely writer and it's something really intrinsic to the, to our specialty.
0: Very cool. All right. Thank you. Maroon, how about you?
2: I want to recommend this show on Apple TV. It came out maybe last year, but I just watched it recently. It's called Bad Sisters. Um, it's about a group of sisters. One of them is married to a very toxic individual and the rest of the sisters scheme to take him out of the picture. Um, it's a dark comedy and it's very entertaining.
0: Nice. Sounds fun. Um I am going to go old school here because I just reread one of my all time favorite books that I, I hadn't read in many, many years, but it's called Angela's Ashes. I think everyone's probably heard of it by Frank McCourt. It is just an incredible book. It won the Pulitzer Prize. There's a lot of interesting background. He, um, it's a true, I mean, it's a book, it's a memoir of his own childhood and growing up. Um, he, uh, I didn't realize this, but he evidently didn't write this book until he was almost 60. And he had thought about writing for a long time and then didn't really find the right kind of way to go about it, the right voice. And then he ended up, and I may have the details slightly wrong, but he ended up kind of interacting with, I think, like a five-year-old. And he was thinking about the way the five-year-old was talking and thought, you know, that's what I should do. I should write this in the voice of a kid instead of the voice of an adult reflecting back and that's what he did. And it is incredibly well done there. It is at times hilarious, at times incredibly poignant. And, and you know, you'll laugh, you'll cry. It is just an incredible book. So if you've never read Angel's Ashes, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I now have probably read it at least three times and really enjoyed it this past time yet again. So highly, highly recommend. All right. Maroon and Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having us. It's been really fun. Thanks for
0: having us. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's patreo dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash acrac. For looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAC Podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.